Why don't we turn there? Jonah chapter 1. And once we're there, I would love to pray in particular out of that song that we just sang. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this much we know for sure. The wicked can't prevail. Try as they might, their plans must surely and ultimately fail. Though for a time they seem to win, thank you that our God will triumph in the end. And Lord, that your wrath is, is the final cure. It's the final cure, Lord. When we think of the volume of righteous wrath that you continue day by day to withhold from the earth in your slowness to anger because your desire is that more and more might flee to Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, it's staggering. The Psalms say, Lord, you are a God who feels indignation every day. And this past week's news has, has only magnified this problem of your grace that we thought of last week, the staggering truth that you, the righteous God, that wrath is going to be your final cure. But first, Jesus came to endure your wrath toward our sins so that we might have hope. So we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for what you've done at the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you struck Satan the final blow there. And when you walked out of the, the tomb and left it empty behind you, <clears throat> We thank you that, G that Satan is in his death throes, but we recognize he can do much destruction and he, he continues to wreak much havoc in this world and in our lives even around us until that day that's coming. So until that day, Lord, help us to grow more and more like you, trusting ourselves to you. Would you give us hearts that don't grow hard in the face of um, evil and wickedness and violence uh, and hostility in the world, but that grow softer like yours, deep with compassion and grace and mercy and patience. <clears throat> Lord, I pray you'd kill the, the Jonah-like hearts that we can have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we sang that line in that verse, though for a time they seem to win, but our God will triumph in the end, um, and we're thinking about the, the wickedness in the world, I couldn't help also think about Jonah, that here he is, this guy who's supposed to be a prophet of the Lord, a representative and a mouthpiece of God, is living like an enemy of God here, as we see him in the book of Jonah. And though he seems to be winning, running away from God, in chapter one, we will very much see that God will triumph in the end for Jonah, for the sailors who are with him, ultimately in this book for this, the people of Nineveh in his day and he will triumph in the end in our world. But early this week as I was, I was studying the book, the cha chapter one of Jonah, I was reminded of this read aloud book that, that we got from the library a few years ago that I read with Elijah, my son, many times. This might seem a little silly, but stick with me. I don't know if any, any kids in the room ever read Shark versus Train? Who will win? Any parents read this to your kids? Go find it at the library. Yes. I see one hand, Allison Howell. It's such a funny book. It's such a funny concept. In this book, it actually is, you know, these two brothers are playing with their respective toys, the train and the shark, and it turns into this all-out battle of shark versus train. Who will win? 
But who will win? The humor of the book is it all depends on where the battle is fought and what the contest is over. So I won't drag this out. But for example, it all depends. Is this battle fought in the ocean? You see the train sink into the bottom. Or or on railroad tracks, right? It, It all depends. It could go either way. All sorts of ridiculous things like roasting marshmallows. I mean, the train with his, like, you know, coal fire is going to win. Or is it, uh, what is it, uh, or uh, going off of the high dive. Well, the shark is clearly in the advantage seat there. Um, But I kept thinking about this book all week. And if I was going to give a title to Jonah chapter 1, it would be Prophet versus God. Who will win? I mean, chapter 1 is a contest. It is a battle of wills. That's the whole story arc of chapter 1. But absolutely unlike that book that I read with Elijah, it does not depend whether it's on land or sea. It does not depend on what the... It is no contest from the very beginning. It's it's futile. We should see Jonah and and his course of action here as being ridiculous and laughable. He's a prophet of God. He came after David who wrote Psalm 139, there is nowhere you can flee from the presence of God. If you go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even in Sheol, in the grave, you can't escape the Lord. He knows it. And yet, he digs his heels in and he battles prophet versus God. If you look back at the first three verses that Eric unpacked for us last week and beautifully set the stage of, of why we're in Jonah right now, what we're praying, that, that, uh, the, the effect that Jonah would have on us as his people. Um, and he just took the first three verses and it just sets up the contest beautifully. God calls Jonah, arise, call out against Nineveh, their evil has come up against me. And Jonah immediately runs from the presence of the Lord in the opposite direction. He couldn't run further in the opposite direction. Here he is. <coughs> Nineveh's this way, sorry, we're going this way, so if you're looking on the map, Nineveh is that way, and he goes right to the shore, pays the fare, gets on a ship that's headed to the absolute utter end of the Mediterranean, most likely at the, at the tip of Spain where Gibraltar is. I mean, that's how far Jonah wants to flee from the presence of the Lord. And this chapter unfolds kind of like an MMA bout, mixed martial arts. I think I was thinking about this because of Trent Moe, who a couple of weeks ago spoke uh, and shared his testimony at Band of Brothers, who used to be an MMA fighter, and he trains mixed martial arts kids and, and adults o- over in Fullerton. But uh, I was thinking of MMA because the goal in MMA is to win either by knockout or by submission, right? In other words, to put your opponent into a position where they have to tap out. They have to acknowledge, I'm powerless. If this goes any further, dislocation or bones are going to break. And they, and they tap out. And they say, I yield. That's what this story is like. I was tempted to, I texted Trent this last night, to have him come up here real quick and see how long it would take him to put me into a, a submission hold. But my watch doesn't have second hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, value, I value my body, but he could. It would take no time, I guarantee it. But Jonah is about to go five rounds with God here in chapter one. I see five points in this storyline where Jonah, God sovereignly presents Jonah with a tap out moment. He could tap out at least five times as the, the events play out in this story and submit and say, I was wrong, forgive me, repent and turn in the other direction, and he doesn't. In fact, I think, as we see in chapter 3, God's readiness to relent of the disaster he says he'll bring on Nineveh if they'll repent 
should leave us safe to assume that at any moment here in chapter one, if Jonah had tapped out, that God would have relented from the storm that he throws on this ship and, and the peril that they're all in. But Jonah digs his heels in. He doubles down. So I want us to remember, too, before we go dive into this chapter, three of the four themes Eric pointed us toward last week because they're all here, and we're going to see how they all play together. Number one is the rightness of God's judgment. He's a holy God. Sin and wickedness and rebellion rightly draw his wrath and judgment, and it's right. But also this amazing problem of grace Eric talked about, his amazing grace that, that he does feel indignation every day, and yet he's slow to anger and merciful and compassionate and all that. But third, and wrapped around all of this, is his absolute sovereignty. God is in control. And all three of these come to play in the story. So instead of just reading the whole story and then breaking it down, I want us to really enjoy how this story unfolds. So I'm just going to read it as we go and, and pause and work our way through it. So look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. By the way, I brought a sound effect here just to, to heighten our experience here. This is, this is like a, a, an MMA battle here that Jonah's going to go five rounds. So here we go. Round one. I know it doesn't sound like the big old, I couldn't find anything that sounded like that. But of course, I asked my wife a couple days ago, hey, do we have a, a bell or anything? She's a teacher. She's like, oh, of course I do. And she pulled it right out. So here we go. Round one. A mighty storm. Look at verses four and five. God's move first, right? So Jonah's running the opposite direction. Round one, God's move. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. A mighty tempest. This was no Southern California Hurricane Hillary that we all endured in August, right? Whew, man, we all made it through that rainy day. This is tense. Two things here that we just read are supposed to make us go, this is no ordinary storm. Number one, it's threatening to break up the ship. I mean, they've barely set out from land, as we're going to see later, because they try to row back to land. And all of a sudden, this storm just descends, and it's threatening to break up the ship. Now, this was not just a, a, a little like, I was picturing like, you know, how a, a kids draw a boat, like a half circle with a stick and then a triangle, like... This is probably a Phoenician ship. I mean, the Phoenicians were master shipbuilders, and they knew what they were doing, and they, and they built ships that could weather amazing storms. In fact, I, I got a little bit on a rabbit trail this week and was reading, because of my wife, who also knows lots of things about the Phoenicians, and she got me think, you know, uh, learning about the Phoenicians and their shipbuilding, but I came across this article about this guy, Philip Beale, who was a modern-day sailor and shipbuilder, and to prove what we know about the Phoenician shipbuilding back in the ancient day, how strong their ships were, he built a ship as best he could according to what they, we believe, the sh Phoenician ships, and he, he sailed that thing for two years with a crew over 20,000 miles all the way around the tip of Africa just to show these were serious boats, right? This was not a little skiff that Jonah had booked a fare on, and it's threatening to break up. The wind and waves are just tossing this ship around like it is a toy. They're probably hearing wood creaking and maybe the sail is torn or maybe the mast starts to crack. And the second thing that tells us this is a serious <laughs> is all the sailors are freaking out. These are not sissies, right? These are 
guys who, who lived at sea. They were not strangers to storms, and they're panicking. It's all-out chaos. Every one of them, they're polytheists. They believe in all kinds of different gods who rule over different realms and different parts of the earth, and there's personal gods to whom they can go. And every one of them is just frantically calling any god they can think of, hoping that one of them will pick up and do something, and it's not working. So they start hurling the cargo off the ship. This is what they're going to make their money from, right? What they're going to deliver on the other end. And they don't care. They just want to save their lives. And so they're chucking everything overboard to make the ship lighter. And it, it must have been chaos. So that's God's move number one. Your move, Jonah. Where's Jonah? Look at verse 6. At the end of verse 5. As the Lord is hurling wind and waves at the ship, where's Jonah? Well, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. We're supposed to picture Jonah just doing this, right? I'm not listening. I don't know why he's able to fall asleep. Maybe he's like Eric. I've heard Eric over the years brag that he can fall asleep anywhere no matter what's going on on any surface. Maybe that's Jonah. Maybe he's depressed because he's running hard from the Lord and he knows it, but he's asleep in the bottom of the ship. So round one ends with God hurling this storm and Jonah is stubbornly trying to hide from God, which is about as effective as a baby hiding from you by going like this, right? So God sends a captain, round two, here we go. Round two, this is your captain speaking, verse six. Here's God's second move. God's sovereignty, I think, we're supposed to see it behind this captain coming down and waking Jonah up, especially in what he says. Look, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> what are you doing sleeping? Listen to this. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God's calling Jonah to repent through this captain. Does arise, call out sound familiar? It should. Look at verse 2 of Jonah. How does, Jonah send, or how does God call Jonah in the first place to Nineveh? Exact same words. Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh and call out against it. So Jonah's sleeping and the captain comes down and he's awakened by the very words he's running from that God had spoken. And this captain is saying to Jonah, maybe your God can do something about this. Maybe he cares enough and will give a thought to us. So pray, Jonah. Call out to him. Maybe he'll give a thought to us. Well, think about it. That's exactly why Jonah is on the ship right now in the first place. He's running from this God who's inclined to show mercy to idol-worshiping pagans. And what this captain doesn't know is hoping, Jonan does know that his God actually is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows that. But unfortunately right now, Jonah's not on speaking terms with the Lord. As the captain is saying, arise, call out to your God, I think we're to hear God saying to Jonah, Jonah, call out to me. Tap out, repent. I will give thought to you and everyone who's on that ship. Just, just talk to me. 
Your move, Jonah. Look at Jonah's move. It's right there in verse 6. Do you see it? You see it? It's, it's nothing. You don't, you don't see it. Silence. It was a trick question. He's given the call out to your God. All the men on the ship are praying to any God they can think of. Call out to your God, Jonah. He won't do it. He refuses. He doubles down. He doesn't tap out. So God forces the issue. Round three. Here we go. Verse seven. Round three. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch a prophet by the toe. That's what happens here. Verses seven through 11 is God flexes one more time by the, the, the men on the ship deciding we're going to cast lots. God's going to expose Jonah through the casting of lots. The sailors say, okay, we've got to figure out which God is angry with whom on this ship. And so they pull out lots. They said to one another, come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Lots were a form of divination, widely practiced through all, all different people groups in the day, including Israel. It was the one form of divination that even in Israel, in the Old Testament, the Urim and the Thummim was this similar kinds of a way of, of praying to the Lord and casting lots and sort of like dice that either answered yes or no or roll again. And, and, they, and they believed, the sailors, but also Jonah would have believed that God would reveal answers to questions like, whose fault is this storm? Can you imagine what Jonah was thinking when the lots came out? The, the, the captain comes down, hey, pray out to your God. He's like, nope, not going to say it. I'm not going to admit. And he's, he's, he's silent. And they're like, all right, we'll figure this out. And they pull the lots out. You know he was thinking, oh, man. I know how this is going to go down. Look at ver- the end of verse 7. He's exposed. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Who knows? I don't know if it was like first they just started with Jonah, cast lots, you're the guy, or if he had to wait for every single guy. Nope, he's not. Nope, nope, nope. And he's just like, oh man. And it, and it finally lands on him. But regardless, he's busted. God reveals to all these sailors it's his fault. And in this book, this little book of the Old Testament, with all these references to, for, to God sovereignly appointing everything from a storm to a worm to a plant, to a fish, we are absolutely supposed to understand God's sovereignty behind this lot cast and, and, and identifying Jonah. Jonah is to understand God is calling him out. He can't run. He can't hide. He's guilty. And so the sailors rapid fire questions at Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, they already know it's his fault, so they, they, they mean, in other words, who is your God, right, that's brought this on us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? All these questions are really driving it, just one urgent question. What God do we need to pray to to get out of this? Just take a minute. Look at those five questions. Do you notice there's one question that's very conspicuously that Jonah doesn't answer coming up? Do you know, notice what it is? What is your occupation? Listen to Jonah's answer and notice how he conveniently leaves that one out. He says to them, I am a Hebrew and, get this, I fear the Lord, <laughs> the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He doesn't happen to mention, oh, by the way, I'm also a prophet of that God. 
I think we're to read between the lines, Jonah has resigned his post. When he got on the ship to Joppa, he said, I'm done being a prophet. And he doesn't want to be identified uh, as a representative of this God to these men. So he identifies himself. I'm a Hebrew, which even that term smacks a bit of self-righteousness. The term Hebrew as a name to self-designate as a a, a member of Israel Embedded in the very word is a us-them distinction. It's, its root is a word that has to do with crossing over or the opposite of, tracing all the way back to when God called Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, to leave the, the Euphrates region and the idols that he worshiped and to cross over into this new land that God was going to bring him into to make a people for his own possession. And so to say to a non-Hebrew, I am a Hebrew, is equivalent to saying I am within the boundaries of God's people and you are are not. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, which is ironic, as they're going to see. And then he identifies his God. Who is his God? He says he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, he's not a regional deity. He is the one true overarching supreme God of everything. If he created the land and the sea, the implication is everything in between it and everyone and everything that resides in it and on it, he's the, the, the overarching, the God of all gods. That's who I worship. And the irony is not lost on these sailors. He fears this Lord who's sovereign over everything? He's attempting to flee from the presence. This is your God? Look at verses 10 and 11. The sailors respond appropriately. They're afraid now, and they ask what they must do for Jonah's God to relent. They show a proper fear of the Lord. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. This is my paraphrase. Are you crazy? Are you an idiot, they say? Your God is the supreme, overarching, sovereign God of everything, and you are resisting him? What are you doing? So they ask him, what will cause your God to relent? And look there. What should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Your move, Jonah. What's he going to do? He's exposed. He's given another opportunity to tap out and relent, and he doesn't. He says, hurl me in the sea. I'm not talking to the Lord. Throw me overboard. He could have said, you don't need to do anything. This is about something I need to do. I need to turn toward the Lord and stop right, uh, running from him and, and fighting him. I need to repent. But instead, he'd rather die and face God's judgment than have anything to do with the possibility of God showing mercy to people in Nineveh. And so look at verse 12. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. I know it's because of me that this tempest has come upon you. He puts the responsibility on them. He doesn't even just jump overboard, right? He forces them to sacrifice him into the ocean to the God of heaven so that his wrath will be appeased because of Jonah's sin. And they're understandably afraid to do that. I mean, they're just getting their first 
glimpse of the power of the one true God, and they're understandably nervous about maybe getting this wrong and possibly throwing an innocent man overboard. And so they try one last ditch effort. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to shore, to dry land. They unwittingly give Jonah another chance to wriggle out from God's sovereign move without tapping out. If, if they get to shore, Jonah can try another one. Maybe he can take a train this time. But the Lord's not letting Jonah slip out. Round four. The storm goes to 11. Look at verse 13, the end of it. They could not. They tried rowing for shore. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. However, and it was already bad enough that they were all freaking out, right? So it just makes, gets very clear nobody's getting to shore. There's only one option here. Verse 14, Jonah has one last chance to repent. One more time to tap out and submit to the Lord as he listens to them pray. Listen to their prayer. Man, these pagans are better prayers than Jonah. Oh, Lord, they say. They call him by his, his name that he had given to, to Moses, right? The I am. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, oh, Lord, have done as it pleased you. They submit themselves to the sovereignty of God in this situation. And as Jonah's hearing them pray, it's one last chance for him to, to join their prayer. And he doesn't. Silence. He won't tap out. So verse 15, so they pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea and he goes over the railing with his, I, I imagine, with his arms still crossed. I won. Now I'm going to stop the story right here at the first part of <clears throat> verse 17 and leave the second part for next week. <clears throat> we'll see Jonah's next move next week in chapter 2, but spoiler, God wins. <clears throat> Epilogue. I skipped over verse 16. Go back and look at it. I love this. I love the irony that, that Jonah didn't see this happen. He went to what he thought was his watery grave, not knowing what happened on deck. Look at what happened on deck when he went into the water. Then the men, or the sea calmed instantly. And here's how the men responded. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. So Jonah said, I fear the Lord. Here they are. They feared the Lord exceedingly. <clears throat> and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I was thinking about this this week. These sailors were not just unfortunate, wrong place at the wrong time, accidental potential collateral damage between Jonah and the God who he was fighting with. Unfortunately, God had redemptive plans for them as, as well. It's a great reminder, isn't it? I, years ago, in a, in a sermon I heard John Piper preach, he said, you know, in any given situation in our lives, God is doing a thousand things. And maybe we can see three of them. Maybe. God is the ultimate omnitasker. God in his sovereignty has purposes for everyone on that ship. For Jonah, it's rebuke. And in grace, he's showing him the, the slowness of anger that he would like to offer even to Nineveh. But he has purposes for these pagan idol-worshiping sailors as well. This storm was an act of severe mercy for them too. 
to reveal through general revelation, through the creation, who is really God, right? And through special revelation, through just a few choice words from Jonah, all they needed to hear was that his God was the God of heaven who made the sea and the land and everything in between it. And based on that very small amount of evangelistic information, they fear the Lord exceedingly, offer sacrifice and vows. To say that they feared the Lord exceedingly, the Psalms and Proverbs say that's the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when it says they offered sacrifice, I don't think that they just suddenly, you know, set something on fire. I mean, they'd thrown everything over, overboard anyway. I don't know what they would have had to sacrifice. I think the implication is <clears throat> those sailors' worldview changed that day. And when they got their feet on dry land, they immediately went and offered sacrifice to give thanks to the God of heaven who had delivered them from his wrath. And I think when it says and made vows is to, to imply to us that this wasn't just a one and done tossing a coin in the tip jar to God. Hey, thanks for getting us out of that scrape. <clears throat> I think they realized that day who the true God is. I think we just may see those guys in heaven. And I'm not so sure about Jonah. The only reason I think we're probably going to see Jonah in heaven is I think it's most likely that the reason we even have the book of Jonah is that the, the terrible place that he finishes in this book where he's still sitting there ticked off at God, eventually he tapped out, I think. I think that's why we have this book. I think this is Jonah's confession to us, to Israel. <clears throat> but these sailors' worldview changed that day. Do you see the irony in this story? It's just dripping with it. Here's Jonah fleeing on their ship because he will not be part of God showing mercy to pagans. And the very storm that's a rebuke to him causes these sailors to have a come-to-Jesus moment on the ship, and he doesn't even know about it. He's already been part of God showing mercy to pagans, and he doesn't even know it. It's amazing. They respond with greater demonstration of reverence than we've seen from Jonah so far, or through the end of this book, really. So, that's the story. That's a great story, isn't it? All right, well, Paul said that these things were written for our instruction, right? So, what do we need to take away from this story? It may depend on who you are and your current posture toward the Lord this morning and mine. First, maybe you have never turned to God, ever. Maybe your current posture to God <clears throat> wholesale is running from God. You have not trusted in Him. You have not repented, turned from your sin, confessed your need for a Savior, and turned and trusted in Christ who died for your sin. Maybe that's you this morning. You are currently running from God. Well, what you need to take away from this story is summed up very succinctly in Hebrews 10, verse 31, learning it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing, the rightness of God's judgment. He's right in his wrath toward your sin and your rebellion. It's not just a mistake. It's a high-handed offense to the God who gave you life and breath and everything, and it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands of judgment, but is it a wonderful thing to run into his arms of forgiveness, which he most certainly offers you through Jesus. He is holy and righteous, and his wrath burns towards sin, but from the foundations of the world before creation, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit have had a plan of redemption, 
a plan of grace and mercy, a way, though we sin, to offer rebellious people who run from him grace and an escape from the wrath they deserve. And it's through Jesus. First Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. How has he accomplished this? By becoming the ultimate anti-Jonah. Think about Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God the Father said to God the Son, arise and go. It's time. And he joyfully said, yes, the whole earth was Jesus Nineveh. This wicked place full of evil that needed to be dealt with. And he didn't run in the opposite direction. Philippians 2 said, though he was in the very form of God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So like Jonah, in this one way, his death turned away the wrath of God from falling on others, but very unlike Jonah, it wasn't because he was guilty, but because he was innocent. An eternal son of God in flesh as our representative bore the full weight of God's wrath for your sin so that you don't ever have to taste it if you'll tap out. Maybe this morning you're beginning to realize maybe God has brought some severe mercies into your life right now. That up until this morning, you've only shaken your fist toward God and thought a good God wouldn't put me through this. But maybe you might see for the first time this morning, maybe that's the severe mercy of God trying to get my attention and reveal himself to me. You haven't run too far from God. You haven't run too long from God. This story tells you otherwise. If you're here and alive and breathing this morning, you are not too far from God. You can turn for, to him right now. He's as near as right now. Tomorrow is a terrible day to turn from God because you don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. Today's the day, the Bible says. And I beg you not to leave here. If that's you, you're running from God, talk to me or one of our prayer team at the end of this service. We would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you turn toward God. That's the first reason you might need to hear <clears throat> Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Here's another one. Maybe you are more like Jonah here, and you claim to fear the Lord, and maybe you even do to an extent, but you're running from him in a particular area of active rebellion in your life. So unlike Jonah, maybe God hasn't spoken to you and said, I want you to go here. He hasn't given you a specific mission, but there's lots here that God has given you to follow him, right? Things he says don't do things he calls you to, and maybe in some way, and you know it, you are in active resistance and, and rebellion. You are saying, God, in this area of my life, you are not sovereign. I call the shots, and you know it. <clears throat> maybe God's even sent some severe mercies into your life right now to get your attention, and you know it. Or maybe there's no trials or, or, or outward sort of ex, uh, external experiences that God is trying to get your attention, but it's just this in, inner sort of Psalm 32 way that God can work. Listen to this, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, meaning in my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's another 
severe mercy of God, a kindness of God for those who are his and sin against the light. Maybe he doesn't let us be okay with that. Maybe you know that feeling. God's hand is heavy on me. You know that this is a little MMA battle you're having with the Lord, and you know you should tap out. You just don't want to. Well, you can know the freedom and relief of Psalm 32 today. Let me read the last part of that. Or or let me read what Psalm 32 says the the alternative is. Should have had a bookmark. Here's the alternative to keeping silent and feeling the heavy hand of God weighing upon you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man against whom the Lord doesn't count iniquity. Who is that man? Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Wouldn't you rather have that? That's way better than running. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to confess to the Lord and find a brother or sister in Christ who you trust and include them in the mix to help you confess that sin to death. Third reason you might need to hear Jonah chapter one this morning. Maybe you're grieving and you're burdened for a loved one who is running hard from God. Two weeks ago on a Friday night, we met upstairs in the youth room, invited parents in particular, just thinking of children who are struggling and straying. And it wasn't a large group, but it was powerful time that we had praying with tears for children who are running hard from the Lord in one way or another. But I know, even though it was a small gathering up there, I'm very well aware they represent a way larger group among us. And not just tears over children who are struggling and straying, but over parents who are struggling and straying and cousins, and siblings, and co-workers, and neighbors, and loved ones. If that's you this morning, and you're discouraged, and you, and, and, and you don't know if you can keep praying, it just seems impossible that the Lord would change that person. Jonah chapter 1 should give you an encouragement. All signs on the outside m- might point to never going to happen. I got some of those in my family. But that doesn't factor into the equation the God of heaven who made the land and the earth and for whom all of the universe is at his disposal to hurl. People, relationships, circumstances. So keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep loving. He alone is the one who can make a person who is dead to sin alive together with Christ. You can't do that. He can. Keep praying. Keep waiting. So as we close this morning, we're going to close taking the Lord's Supper. As we remember Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross and his body that was given in our place, his sinless, perfect self as our representative to deliver us from the wrath to come and actually make us righteous in God's sight as God counts his righteousness for us. That's what we remember as we in just a minute, we're going to come forward and take these two elements together. <clears throat> but I want to point something out here, how very connected it is to everything we've just been talking about in Jonah chapter 1. Paul says, as we take the Lord's Supper, this act of eating and drinking and doing this together um, visually proclaims Christ's death until he comes. And when we proclaim Christ's death, there's at least three things that we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming the rightness of God's judgment, aren't we? 
just like Jonah shows us. As you come forward and the servers say to you, Christ's body was given for you and Christ's blood was shed for you, we are proclaiming together visually that a holy God cannot and will not sweep sin under the rug. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. That's what we're declaring as we take the Lord's Supper. But we're simultaneously proclaiming in his death the amazing grace of God, aren't we? So again, as the servers say, Christ's body was given for you, Christ's blood was shed for you. They're proclaiming that God has demonstrated this kind of amazing grace and love for you while you were still a sinner. First, before you had any inclination of tapping out and turning to Him, God moved first in this amazing way, gracious way through the cross and His Son. And believers, if God was willing to to go to that length while you were still an enemy, Romans 5 says, how much more then, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Gives us hope to keep persevering today and, and resting in his full forgiveness. And the last thing we're gonna proclaim, as the servers say, Christ's body was given for you and Christ's blood was shed for you, is that God is sovereign. How? Because we're proclaiming that in the battle of Satan versus God, God wins. And that the decisive blow in that battle has already happened at the cross. And when Jesus arose and walked out of an empty tomb and left grave clothes behind, that's what we're proclaiming here, that God is sovereign. He called his shot. Prophecy after prophecy, he said, this is what I will do. And Jesus came and did it all according to every last thing that had been written. He fulfilled it to the end, which then should give us confidence as we walk out these doors into an evil world as evil but redeemed people ourselves and ambassadors of God's grace, this reminder that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Under our feet. What an amazing thing we're going to proclaim. So, let me pray. Father God, God of heaven who made the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea and everything in them, sovereign God, righteous, holy God, merciful, compassionate God, we thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit for your amazing plan of redemption, for including us in it. Lord, as we celebrate in this way now um, with these visual reminders, Jesus, of your sacrifice for us, Lord. I pray our spirits would be strengthened and refreshed and sealed and confident. And as we leave here today with a fresh sense of our, our commission to be ambassadors of this great news, in Jesus' name, amen.